0: Our sermon text for tonight is found in Acts chapter 5, so if you have a Bible, i invite you to turn there, Acts chapter 5, and we'll read beginning in verse 1 through verse 11, Acts 5, 1 through 11, it says this, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you and we're thankful uh, once again to be in your presence. We're thankful that we have the opportunity to gather in the busyness of our week and just pause uh, for a moment to sing of your praises and to study your word and so father we thank you for that unspeakable privilege and god we ask for your blessing this night as we continue our journey through acts we come upon a difficult passage and we ask that your spirit ultimately would be our teacher and that we would leave here with greater insight into the passage but ultimately a heart uh, more in love with you so bless us. we pray in christ's name amen um when you're raising kids, there's a number of firsts, as every parent here knows. My wife and I have a five-year-old son I've mentioned before, Wyatt, and a three-year-old daughter named Channing, so we are in the thick of child raising, and there are a number of firsts, of course, whenever you raise a child. I spoke last week of how um, when Wyatt first walked, we had it on video, and it's just this amazing, you know, encounter where he just stands up and starts walking across the room. Uh, You have all kinds of first, you know, the, the, the first steps. Uh, most parents, we were no exception, compete to see if the first words will be mama, right, or dada. Proud to say it was dada in, uh, in Wyatt's case, okay, so. Uh, you know, but you compete over that, you know, what's the first words going to be, those kinds of things. And we just started recently to teach um, Wyatt how to ride a bike. And there's all these, these firsts in the life of the child, and most of them are joyful. But there of course, are also uh, more painful first, the first time they wet the bed, right? The, the first uh, time they scrape their knee or, or have an accident. Um, for us, it was the first time we went to Disney, okay? It was supposed to be joyful, oh no, oh no. The first time to Disney was torture, okay? It was painful, uh, I couldn't believe I actually paid for the privilege, right? Uh, it was brutal. And it was our mistake, you know, partly. Uh, We took our kids they were a little too young, and both of our uh, kids, but especially my son, have these these paralyzing fears of mascots, okay, or anything in a costume, and obviously Disney then is the, like the worst place on earth to be, literally. Uh, We also made the mistake of going on July 4th weekend, okay, exactly. Um, And shame on us, because we're actually from Florida. Like, we were born here, okay? I lived in central Florida for a lot of my life. Uh, and yet, I still made the mistake, as if I was this ignorant person, you know, who never heard of Disney. Uh, I came on July 4th weekend. It was 110 degrees, you know, most crowded weekend of the year. So needless to say, our, our, our first trip to Disney was also our last trip. We haven't been back <laughs> with, with the kids, which is hilarious. Uh, but it was brutal. You have all these firsts in your life you know, as a parent. Some are, are joyful and some are painful. Um, but as we continue our study in the book of Acts, I think the metaphor is appropriate because we've, we've chosen to look at this book of Acts. We're now five weeks in. And we're journeying slowly through this book. But it's important to remember that the book of Acts in some ways is like thinking about raising a child. That the book of Acts records for us literally Uh, The birthing of the people of God after the resurrection of Christ. A church has been born. Uh, A church has been born, and we see in the early pages of the book of Acts, we see the infancy of the new church. And so there's lots of firsts in the book of Acts, as we've now seen for a few weeks. There's the first sermon uh, after the resurrection. so the very first sermon preached in the early church by Peter. Uh, There's the first conversion. There's a mass conversion. Thousands of people at Pentecost are converted. And last week we saw the very first apostolic healing, the very first healing by one of the apostles after the resurrection in the life of the church. And so most of these firsts in the book of Acts are joyful. They're highlights, if you will. But now in chapter 5, we get to one of those painful firsts. We get to really the first um, judgment, if you will, on the early church. Uh, and it's painful, but it's here in chapter 5 that we must wade through it. And so if you're listening to the sermon text, uh, verses 1 and 2, we're introduced to this man, Ananias, and his wife, Sapphira. And Ananias, his name means Yahweh is gracious, and Sapphira means beautiful. And you have the, these two... People, this man and his wife. And they're presented as really a contrast at the end of chapter four. You don't have to look now, but if you're to go back and look later in chapter four, we're told that after all of these amazing firsts in the life of the church, uh, they are as close as humanly possible as a community. That God has knit their hearts together in such amazing grace and love and sacrifice, and it even uses the phrase that great grace was upon them all and at the end of chapter four you see this this example of this grace and this harmony and this peace by the person of barnabas who will show up later in the book of acts as well but barnabas comes and he sells a field and he lays it at the apostles feet he lays all the proceeds at their feet in order the needs of the poor in their community might be met. And it's this amazing example of how, how, how closely knit together this community has become under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And immediately you turn to chapter 5 and now we're introduced to Ananias and Sapphira. And their coming to the Apostles is quite a contrast. Quite a contrast. Like Barnabas, they come and they lay their offering uh, of a sold piece of property at the Apostles' feet, but instead of Barnabas who gave the whole amount in their case, it's only a partial amount. It's only a partial amount. And so the, the text sort of presents them early on as, as sort of counterfeits, okay? They're the, sort of, the anti barnabas in a sense. They come in very similar fashion, but their cases are very unalike. But then you look at verse 3, and it says, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And you see, Peter's remarks, they, they bring a couple things to our attention here. You see, Peter references Satan. And you notice that Peter basically understands that in this sort of account of Ananias and Sapphira, that the player behind the scene is Satan, that he has tempted them and he has manipulated them. He, they're not possessed, we won't go that far, but they've been manipulated and they've been used by Satan to do what? To attempt to undermine the church. And so you'll see in the book of Acts that there's all these external threats that will come to the church. But there's also now this internal threat that will arise, and we see it here in the the persons of Ananias and Sapphira, that he wants to try to fracture the church from within. But we also see a couple other things in Peter's remarks. We notice that there was no mandate or there was no compulsion uh, to give everything. Did you see that in his words? He says, when it was your property, it was your own. You could do whatever you want with it. You didn't have to sell any of it. You could have even given a portion of it, and that would have been okay. okay? So they were under no compulsion to give. So sort of you know, bad news for the televangelists right, on late night TBN. Okay? This is actually not a text about giving large sums of money to the church. Okay? Don't, don't get nervous there. Don't get cynical. Okay? This is not a, not a sermon on tithing. Okay? Uh, this is not a TBN, you know, give everything and I'll give you a cloth when you leave here, okay? And God will love you more, okay? No, this actually is not a text about tithing at all, okay? It was their property. They could do what they want with it, all right? So what is it about? Well, instead, what we begin to see here is that the issue at play, the, the, the sin, if you will, at play, is that Ananias and Sapphira... They've collectively determined, if you will, uh, to deceive. They're going to deceive the apostles. They're going to deceive the church. And they wanted to sort of appear sacrificially generous. They wanted to appear like Barnabas who had gone before them, but without the actual cost attached to it. They wanted to appear generous, but without the actual cost Attached to it. And we say, well, why would they have done that? And you can think of many reasons, can we not? I mean, we know even in our day that if you, if you give lots of money, you, you get your name on things. And you gain notoriety, you gain prominence, perhaps, okay? And you even gain authority, maybe, okay? And so they want to give in a way that will bring the benefits of giving, socially, okay? Uh, amongst friends, but without the actual price tag, uh, attached to it okay they're trying to deceive here they're trying to use the church and use the apostles for their own reputation and we can think of many parallels in the new testament i mean you can think about when christ observes um, the widow who gives the two coins in the offering and in the comparison to the pharisees who come and the rich rulers who give large sums of money but they give it out of their excess, right, or their abundance, and the widow gives two coins out of her poverty, and the Lord says, that's the sacrificial giver. Or we also, I can think about it when Christ accuses the Pharisees of being whitewashed tombs, okay, looking good on the outside, but inside, decay, corruption, deceit. and all these accounts, we see people who are more enamored with the praises of men than they are with the praise and the approval of God. So, how, so what, do we, what do we make of this? Well, verse 5, Ananias heard these words. He fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men arose, verse 6, and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Most commentators believe that what's happening here is they're thinking, okay, these are, these are Jews, they're thinking of the law. And in Deuteronomy, for instance, the law is given that if someone is cursed by God, they might be hung on a tree. That's why Christ is thought of as cursed in his ministry. Uh, but when someone dies, that kind of death, a capital punishment, the body can't remain overnight. It must be put away with that same night in order for the land not to be defiled. And so likely in their minds they see the death of Ananias, it's a a shocking death. It seems like a death of judgment, a death of cursing, and they must remove the body immediately. We're not exactly sure, but potentially this is what is at play here. There's divine judgment on the church. Well, what happens to his wife, verse 7, an interval of about three hours, and she comes in not knowing what had happened. And Peter says to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her also beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You see, his wife is brought in and she's given a chance to repent. She's given a chance to kind of come clean and yet she also fails to do so. And so we see in this couple, it's a sort of Adam and Eve-like sin. Both were consenting to the rebellion uh, and yet when given a chance to come clean, don't. But what's interesting, is look at how that section ends. It says, Great fear came upon the whole church. It seems like an understatement, doesn't it? I mean, great fear came upon everybody who heard this story, whether they were present or not. Great fear fell upon them. But I think this is a hard passage. It's one that I wish we could kind of navigate around in our journey through Acts, but we can't. But in verse 11, I don't want you to miss what's said here. It says, The whole church. They fell into great fear. But don't focus on the understatement there of the emotions. Focus on that word church. You see, this is the first time, this is amazing, this is the first time in the book of Acts that Luke, the writer, will use that word church. Think about all that's happened so far. Baptisms, conversions, preaching, healings. The first time that word ekklesia, the word for church, comes up, is here. And that's interesting. See, the word ekklesia, it's the Greek word, it means like assembly, okay, and it's actually a word kind of taken, borrowed from Greek life, like when citizens would gather, so think of like a town hall meeting, okay, we're in the political season, think of a town hall meeting, that word, that Greek word for assembly, okay, is basically borrowed to now speak of the church, okay? But the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it okay? uses that exact same word, ekklesia, to talk about the assembly of Israel. So when Israel would gather before God in his presence and worship him, okay, they would be called the ecclesia, the assembly of Israel. And so there's this very intentional thing going on here in Scripture where it's equating the church, okay, the church that's been born after the resurrection, the community of redeemed people saved by grace. Okay? This community under the banner of Christ Jesus, is now the people of God. They're the people of God. And they're connected to the people of God who have gone before them. Okay, that's what that, that's what that word basically means. But think for a moment here, think for a moment this is the first time that Luke uses this. The first time that he calls the gathering of people around the apostles, the church. I think that's significant because he wants us to see that this is a significant story. That, yes, the, the, the judgment and the swift judgment here catches us off guard. But what's at stake here is the bride of Christ. What's at stake here is the building of his redeemed community. The building of his community that will take the good news of Christ Jesus to the four corners of the world. The people who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And so we begin to see here how there's a level of indignation, if you will, on the part of the Holy Spirit when someone comes in and deliberately tries to abuse that bride. When someone comes in and deliberately tries to deceive that bride, and make that bride serve us, and our reputation, and our names, instead of the other way around. And so you can see why God raises up, if you will, and defends his church. But we also have to keep in mind that this is, the book of Acts is a book of transition, the people of God are transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, okay? And so because of that, there's a lot of things here that are happening for the first time. And so just like there's miracles that we don't necessarily expect to be duplicated in our day and age, uh, there's also accounts like this, things of judgment that we wouldn't necessarily expect to happen in our day as well. But what we want to see here is that this is the very foundation of the church being laid. And so God is bringing out all the stops, both miraculously, that's why Peter is able to do the things he does, and we don't expect that of our, of our preachers today. It's also why God seems maybe a bit more severe in his judgment. You see, the foundations of his church are being laid, and he wants nothing to jeopardize that. And so what he does, this is why this all comes full circle. Peter's remarks are so important. He says, this has been Satan at work here. Because Satan knows, what has Christ said? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so if he can't undermine it externally, what will he do? He'll try to undermine it internally, okay? He'll send deceivers. He'll send counterfeit, counterfeits, okay, who will try to fracture the church, Uh, and tear it apart from the inside. And God says, we can't have that happen. I can't have that happen. There's too much at stake. The message of my son, the message of salvation, must go out to the four corners of the world. And so God goes to great lengths to defend his church, to defend his bride. But before we bring this to a close, we'd be remiss if we said, was there any hope? (laughs) I mean, is there any hope here for Ananias and Sapphira Um, is there any hope for, for us? Because if we're honest, what's the sin at play here? Like I said, the sin isn't really greed on their part. The sin isn't really financial on their part. The sin is, it's the sin of being deceptive. The sin of counterfeit. The sin, if you will, of hypocrisy. But that's troubling to me, I don't know if it is to you, because if I'm honest with myself, I'm hypocritical at times. There's certainly more times than than not in my life where what I do on the outside might not match what I do on the inside, what I'm thinking or feeling on the inside, much like Ananias and Sapphira, who come seemingly giving all to the apostles but withholding something. You think about, I mean, what is the very first command we're given? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. No one here can raise their hand and say that we've done that. There's always something that we've withheld. We've withheld part of our hearts, part of our souls, part of our minds, so so the, the, the question is, well, is there hope for us? Is there hope for us partial givers? Is there hope for us hypocrites, us deceivers? the answer is yes. Our only hope, our only hope is Christ. Our only hope is the beautiful reality that God knows this about us, which is why he had to send his son. You see, Ananias and Sapphira gave only a little bit, but one of the reputation of giving all. But thankfully, God sent his son, and his son did the opposite. Christ Jesus gave everything. He gave everything. We read that earlier in Philippians. That's why we chose that passage tonight. What does it say? Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but taking the form of a servant, he emptied himself of everything, even to the point of death on a cross. You see, our only hope our only hope as partial givers, our only hope as partial worshipers, our only hope as hypocrites tonight is that we have a Savior who's name Christ Jesus, who unlike Ananias and Sapphira, he gave everything. He gave everything with no thought to his reputation, no thought to his own glory or his own name. But he gave it all, that his righteousness and his riches and his fullness might be credited to our empty and bankrupt and needy accounts. And that's our hope. That is our hope in the gospel. And you can see now why it's so important for the church, which is being built here in the book of Acts, to be that place where this message would go to the four corners of the world.